Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we connect with people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Nicola Sasso, Content Manager at Soka Global. This podcast series is hosted by Soka Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. Soka Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. You'll hear conversations like this at SoCup 23, our next flagship event held in October 2023 in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 of the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SoCupGlobal.com. We hope to see you there. This episode of Money and Meaning features a SoCup 22 session with Sarah Fensky-Baha of YBCA and Clyde Valentine of One Nation, One Project. They discuss arts, creativity, and the role of cultural institutions as integral platforms for expanding how we can accelerate transformative change. Enjoy the conversation. Good afternoon. My name is Clyde Valentine. I'm Sarah Fensky-Baha. Uh, welcome. Uh, I'm on the board of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and uh, we're going to start talking about our relationship to the institution, but have it come around to the role of arts and culture, and I would say its importance to the kind of strategies and um, things that happen here at SOCAP in general, right? Because uh, this isn't my first SOCAP. I've been coming to SOCAP since, uh, I want to say, 2017. Um, I was introduced to SOCAP through our friends and colleagues, Deborah Cullinan and Penelope Douglas, uh, who have poked around, you know, and, and have insisted that artists and arts institutions have a role to play in economic development strategies and in the kinds of investments that um, happen here at a place like SOCAP. And I think you and I connected, Sarah, Um, in a very interesting way, and your trajectory uh, fascinates me, quite frankly, <laughs> you know, because um, I, I met you, I believe, you weren't the board chair quite yet at YBCA, but uh, you, your entry point to YBCA was as a fellow via the YBCA 100. Not via the YBCA 100, just via the fellows program. Just the fellows program. Yep. So can you just maybe, you know, as our interim president and CEO, can you talk about how you entered your relationship to this institution? Like, where did the fellowship come about? Sure. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, for those of you who might not be aware, SOCAP is at YBCA this year. So uh, all of us live are sitting in our spaces and... Um, you know, moving around an art center. So uh, that's the placement of the conversation. Um, I came into relationship with YBCA. I'm looking at someone in the audience who might know the date better than me. Um, in the mid-2010s, I want to say 2015, 2016, 2017, um, I was a professor of economics at the time at a school of art and design, a college of art and design. And 
I eventually came to run the program that I taught in, but my practice was based in, um, I began my career in economic development, community development. Uh, I was a regulator. I was a banker. When I moved to the Bay Area, I wanted to do, um, I, I went into banking to pay off my student loans, just to be clear. That was more of a dead end for me than something I wanted to continue doing for a long time. Um, I moved to the Bay Area in 2007, determined to find more meaningful work again. I loved working in government and doing community-level work. Um, I found myself in a college of art and design doing a long study on money and families and the different ways families do money. Um, those The reasons I studied that are deeply grounded in my own personal experience, but had me talking to families of all different types, shapes, and sizes and um, designing solutions that the financial system in the United States did not. I came into relationship with YBCA during that time um, because YBCA was running this fellows program. Um, I was in the Freedom uh, Fellows cohort. Was I in the Freedom Fellows cohort? Yes. Thank you. Um, and I was looking at economic freedom. And the question we were looking at um, in my cohort, and my cohort was um, running at the same time as Penelope's, um, when we get to talking about our relationship with her, um, I was looking at economic freedom. And the question really was, uh, what do we do when the structures that um, might provide for our financial freedom don't? And what kinds of alternative structures might we need to build in order for that to happen? Um, I joined the board a couple years later. I became the board chair. I became the interim CEO. So I've sat in a lot of seats here. <laughs> right, right, right. But you, you just jumped over a few things, right? <laughs> and I'm just curious because you didn't have to say yes to those other things. So what was it about your experience here as a fellow that yeah. um, encouraged you to keep peeling back the layers of the place, given your background in economic development and in finance, um, to say, you know, this cultural institution, this, uh, you know, hub for arts and culture is a place that I want to stick around and lean into. Um, so my parents don't speak to one another, but one is an accountant and one is an artist. And I was the first person in my family to go to college, like the four-year way. Um, and so I did like what every good girl was doing at the time. I studied political science and economics and all of those things. And I chased down, um, thinking I needed to be that type of person to be successful. I, when I found YBCA, I tapped into a part of myself that I hadn't allowed to exist for a while, if I'm being honest, um, my creative side. And what I found and what I really learned over several years was this was a room full of people who wanted to make change and knew that the training that they had 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 a limitation to it and that they needed to be in relationship with other types of people looking for new ways of doing things. And I found that here. Um, my fellows class was filled with poets and dancers and the current San Francisco Poet Laureate was in my class. There was a Tiananmen Square protester currently working at NASA in my class. Like, it was a um, group of people who were looking for more and looking for better ways to do things. And that broke me open and made me whole in a lot of ways. And at the time, I used to say, it's the most exciting room, and so I just keep going back. Um, that's what I did. That's great. So, in, in part, uh, it was cross-sector relationships yep. that helped to break you open 
and you know the nexus of that was this particular institution yeah. essentially curating you know who was in the room together right and we know that there's been iterations of that definitely cool what about you uh, so what about me? My first relationship uh, to YBCA was back in 2003, I want to say. We had just uh, started the Hip Hop Theater Festival in 2000, myself, uh, Danny Hawk, and Camilla Forbes. And, you know, we essentially wanted to create a space for our peers um, who were all hip hop generation people uh, in and out, in and around performance art, generally speaking. Uh, so notions of like interdisciplinary art as a as a as a thing was introduced to me uh, through sort of like our first New York Times review where it was like I didn't know that was a thing that's just how we practice right uh, so Ken Foster who was the executive director at the time uh, I think that may be may have been his title. Um, longtime colleague and leader in the arts and culture field uh, invited us out to produce a festival here. And the first thing we did was invite um, our colleagues that are from here, from the Bay Area, uh, to participate in, you know, a Bay Area hip hop theater festival. So uh, Youth Speaks was a major partner. Um, individual artists like Mark Bamuthi Joseph, uh, who later- uh, Became the head of program here. Became the head yep. of program here. Um, and I, I talked about this uh, example last week of sort of a responsive, iterative institution that listens, mm -hmm. listens well and listens deeply because it didn't take more than that first year for Ken Foster and Angela Maddox, who was uh, doing some programming at the time, to realize that um, the very thing they were after in terms of audience diversification um, and bringing younger uh, and uh, more black and brown folks into this building was already here. It was right around them, right? Uh, they just didn't necessarily know that yet, right? So in some ways we served as a bridge, but the real beautiful thing um, is that those relationships evolved locally and that created a closeness between those artists in the Bay Area and this institution. So our roles shifted quite considerably, um, whereas we didn't need to like come out here and produce, and instead what we started to focus on, continuing to iterate and evolve, um, was let's focus on the development of some work, you know, between institutions, between you all as local artists, and let's now bring that out to the rest of the country. So, good. so that yeah. was like kind of, you know, how we shifted as well. So as opposed to being um, sort of salty that the, the festival didn't make sense anymore, what evolved was a doubling down on the development of the work itself. So I think it's interesting to note, just for those who might not know the history, that this institution was founded at, in an act of redevelopment. So um, this site was cleared in order to exist here which is a pretty controversial thing and has been for a long time. Um, it, it's mandate originally and still, um, and something that you know different versions of this organization have looked at differently, is to serve this community and to make sure the voices of this community get to be heard. Um, and 
there's a million ways to do that. I'm not trying to say that there are right and wrong ways, um, but it is something that I think turns up, especially in relationships um, that are developed with people who are not from the Bay. Um, how, how does the interaction with us change them? How does it change us? How does it bring about local talent? Um, what is the ecosystem effect of those collaborations? Um, and there's an underline I want to make around something else you said, which was this willingness to experiment. Um, because that is our founding, that is in our founding DNA, this is a place that tries things. Um, like, it is not a place looking to shake trying things. Um, and I think for this audience in particular, it's a really important thing to know about YBCA. Yeah, um, experimentation and prototyping. I, I think from my perspective, um, one of the things that I feel has been limiting about the arts and culture sector, but shouldn't be, I think there's infinite potential in that function, um, not only with respect to artists and development of work, but as a player in the conversations of building community, um, because you can actually um, try things, right? Where we know that failure is valued as learning in totally. certain sectors, right? Um, and we don't necessarily take on that same lens, but yet it is artists often um, who are embedded in communities who can um, do that the fastest. That's right. And so the most efficient. In this case, there's this really interesting alignment between artist and institution on risk. Right, right. Um, and, you know, for me, that evolved too, right? Because I, I got sort of built that muscle here um, among some other places. And then when I went to Dallas uh, to start Ignite Arts Dallas at the Metal School of the Arts, um, it was very much about arts and, you know, intersecting with economic development and community development and... Ask Clyde sector. for a tour of Dallas if you are ever there. Yeah, um, maybe me and Daryl <laughs> could do it together. We might show you different places, but, you know, I definitely have my version of that. And, and uh, it was sort of during one of these conversations that I had learned from Deborah about sort of this idea of investing differently of uh, thinking more expansively about the resources related to arts and culture around, you know, um, where I think SOCAP uh, is focused, and I was immediately drawn in to that conversation. It's actually when we met, and also um, Penelope and Deborah were collaborating there. Right. You were collaborating with them in Dallas, and yes. I was collaborating with them here a little. Um, Right, which is to say, how can an art center enter the community development conversation, like from a financial perspective, with teeth? That's right. Like, you know, on this sort of like equitable lens. And that led to a lot of other initiatives, right? So we piloted Culture Bank in Dallas, um, attempting to reframe uh, the work of a, of a small cohort, not so much changing what they do, but reframing it with respect to its impacts around the social determinants of health, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about what the model looked like? Oh, uh, for us, it was, you know, just time. Uh, we paid artists to be in conversation with us. So again, it wasn't about changing what they were doing. It was about expanding their ability to talk about what they do in relationship to impacts in the communities that they are already working in, right? So it was an effort to sort of shift narrative you know, for them, um, but also for the field and those who are in a position in Dallas that think more expansively about how they fund the arts, 
right? Because ultimately, you know, this is about money and resources, right? It's something we hear a lot. I mean, I think uh, larger institutions, um, what I think happened here is we examined our responsibility to support um, how capital gets to smaller enterprises. Um, so. And then, you know, we, we hear about scale a lot here also mm -hmm. in terms of what can scale. Um, and we know that, uh, you know, things can start small, but with the right resources, the right timing, you know, um, th things can grow pretty quickly. And I think that that's uh, certainly uh, an area of focus for myself now moving forward in terms of, you know, some of what I've been working on from a project-based perspective. Do you want to go into that now, or do you want to talk about institutions for a little bit? I, I want to stay on the institutional okay. thread, and then we can talk a little bit about projects. So okay. how do you think about scale in this building? Scale in this building. Or in relationship to your mission overall. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things we are really good at, and this is a San Francisco thing and a YBCA thing, um, we're really good at trying new things. We have mastered saying yes to trying new things. Um, I think where we um, are still learning but are developing sort of maybe we're adolescents in this way is how we scale things and how we um, decide which things we scale and which things we don't, right? At the end of the day, we're balancing um, what we need to do to maintain this building and what we need to do to maintain our ability to experiment. And sometimes I think... Um, the, our best, our highest act of service is to develop something to a point and then to not let it go, like let it die, but take it to its next holder in the journey, if you will, um, and try to get support for the next phase. Um, it's, it feels like it's, uh, in the Bay Area language, like maybe we are seed investors and then we pass people to, uh, series A or series B investors, right? But I think we are best suited for that early stage work. Um, because we like to get into it with people. Like we like to know people. We like to um, sort of develop and keep refreshing our hypothesis on how useful we can be. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, I think a lot about the relationship between what philanthropy invests in with us and then um, the usefulness of that as it pertains to scaling things up, right? So guaranteed income is a great example of work that we have done that has um, demonstrated something that the entire field of guaranteed income is trying to escalate beyond philanthropy to government, right? Because right. to expand beyond the hundreds of people that we can support requires a much bigger investment at scale. So what I think in, in terms of our role is that um, I love that this team loves to experiment in deeply values-driven ways in those early stages. And I think we're growing into the spaces where we can help support how work is carried forward. So, so here's another question in relationship to the institution and to part of uh, what I have found uh, resonant here at SOCAP through my years of attending. And that is, um, you know, evidence-based research, right? Everyone needs to do due diligence to inform their portfolio, <laughs> due diligence. I want you to um, say that five times fast. Uh, please don't. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, and we, you know, there's things we know in our bodies to be true, right? Of course, As Someone yes. who's a theater maker, um, who's supported lots of work. Uh, if we're at a creative crossroads, 
like we know in our bodies when we've broken through a particular question or problem around a project, right? We, we just know it. It's intrinsic. We also know that there are all, there are all kinds of intrinsic um, benefits to the arts, but it's in the evidence that, you know, the, the measurable things that um, tend to... Um, I mean, I want to push back a little bit. Can I? Of course. Okay. I mean, as somebody who's been an economist type person and who is currently an arts administrator type person, I think the exciting thing in terms of how I see it is that you can do both, um, present evidence, data-driven sort of analysis-driven stuff, and you can tell great narratives of what you know to be true. I think the strongest arguments include both. However, there are like graveyards of PowerPoint presentations with lots of data suggesting ideas that never go anywhere because they lack heart, they cannot be embodied, and they don't have the human will to move forward. So I'm all for evidence-based. However, what I think is most compelling about the culture sector actually is that it can take and it requires a varied approach, a balanced approach between that sort of evidence-based um, bias and a more narrative embodied human one. Right, and I'm I'm going to say for me it, that it's a both and. Okay, good. It's not. I just wanted to make of. sure. Um, and on top of that, like what we what we have stories in spades when yeah. it comes to arts and culture and artists. We're excellent storytellers, so you know I want to see more um, data that is measurable not only with respect to economic development and the role that arts plays there, which, you know, we, you know, is often what's often what's championed by local governments yep. and, and business leaders, um, but also its impacts on health, its impacts on education, its impacts on uh, civic engagement and activation. So it's interesting. We've riffed on this before, but we haven't talked about um, it today. Uh, in a former life, I was looking at, and I actually taught this, the economic impact analysis um, model of looking at projects, right? So any major project, it could be a festival, it could be a program, it could be an exhibition. I did it in the context of um, rebuilding lower Manhattan. <laughs> but um, every time a city makes choices about what to invest its community dollars in, it's doing an impact analysis, trying to fully understand um, not just the obvious impacts, but the less obvious impacts. I would argue that the culture sector should use those more aggressively to sell its projects for the benefit of communities, 100%. I have yet to see one exist in a cultural institution other than for new building projects. That's the only time. It's for capitalization of more buildings like this and the ripples that inevitably emerge when, you know, you create a public-private, you know, cap plan to build a new facility. Um, but we don't necessarily extend that beyond to the relationships and the ongoing work right. that happens in those buildings, yep. right? We kind of stop there. And it's a, it's a bit of an old story. So the new story for me would be in terms of what's next is given your perch and, and what we're learning um, uh, about the institution working together, what we're learning from the artists that are in and out of the building, from the, from the artists giving circle leads and so on, 
um, how do we push that forward from an institutional perspective? Because for me, joining the board was about continuing to think about the 21st century, to think about how arts institutions like this can serve the field with that kind of thinking and analysis and to lead, ultimately. So I think the biggest benefit of YB, that YBCA has in terms of, I'm going to use competitive advantage just because I think it's appropriate here. It's not a word I like to use. Um, I think the founding story of this place as being responsive to community is a huge advantage. Um, traditional arts institutions are planning three and four years out. We do not do that. Um, we are maybe planning a year out at any given point in time. And what that means is that um, we are responsive to like the mood in the room, if you will, or the mood on the ground. And I think in this moment, like this moment we all find ourselves in, um, 2022 feels very different to me than 2020, than 2018, certainly than 2016. And I think we need to acknowledge, and there's a version of that that's local and a version of that that's more national, and there's a version that's international. Um, I think we just need to acknowledge how divided we are. Um, and so when I think about what we can do for this institution and like how we measure whether we're successful, to your point about metrics, um, I think our highest purpose here is probably to locally look at um, polarization and what uh, the role of an art center can be, whether it's about gathering, whether it's about economic inequality, whether it's about all the other inequalities, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it mean to exert the privilege of a place like this, a location like this, and put it to work for a community? Right on. So and now I'm going to flip So that. I think we can actually measure that. Yeah. I think we can tell that story. I think we can tell it very well. And I, I would hope that there are ripple effects in terms of how other institutions can pick up that story and how it can serve um, in the national conversation, especially about polarization. Right. I, I, I agree with that. And I'll say that uh, the flip for me uh, in that regard is, you know, the project that I co-founded now. Yeah which, you know, is called One Nation, One Project. It's so good, you guys. Uh, I should not have talked so much. It's, no, we wanted to do this, but it's, it's, it's in part about a desire to realize something at scale um, that uh, is very intent on um, a research model yep. and to measure both qualitative and quantitative data. So pieces of art for us from, you know, our question around the role of arts participation and its transformation leading to individual and community well-being um, as an area of focus on the project is an entry point, but by no means is it the end point because um, we know that there could be many questions that emerge from collaborating with communities around the country, especially when they have their own ideas about what they need to learn and what they want to know about themselves, right? So I'd love for you to share more about what the project is because I think it's fascinating. And I think it's important also to ask you what you think the data is in service of, right? I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure. And I, I think it's important to air. Okay. So um, the first part is One Nation, One Project is inspired by the Federal Theater Program, which came out of the WPA, um, emerging from the Depression, where there were 18 plays uh, adaptations of the same play uh, premiering on the same day across the country. 
back in 1937. That play was uh, an adaptation of Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, which is about fascism, so it's uh, incredibly timely. And um, that play iterated completely differently across the country. In Seattle, the Negro Ensemble um, took the notion of fascism head on and casted white uh, actors as KKK members, uh, as opposed to Nazi people. Um, in Birmingham, Alabama, it was an adaptation into a brass band parade. In New York City, the play was adapted to two additional languages besides English, Yiddish, and Spanish. So for us, uh, the, as opposed to a piece of source material, the creative prompt, the invitation to participate in a moment is no place like home. And we are intentionally looking to um, instigate cross-sector collaborations between local governments, artists and arts institutions, and the health sector. Uh, in some places, uh, the partners are federally qualified community health centers. In other places, it's the, like in Chicago, it's like an associate commissioner from their public health department who's thinking about clinics. But the, the framework is essentially the same. Um, we invested early on into uh, a research partnership with the Center for Arts and Medicine at the University of Florida, and we were lucky enough to peel their director away from them um, to work, become our national director of uh, research and impact, and her name is Dr. Jill Sankey. So Jill is leading up our research efforts, and that was one of the first uh, areas of investment we made before we even uh, could speak about the art because we wanted to have that in place. So what are we looking to measure? Um, we are looking to measure how... Can I interrupt one thing? Because yeah. I just want to give you a couple flowers, not mm -hmm. a whole bouquet. It's really important to know that this project is going to reach its full crescendo in the summer of 2024 in anticipation of a um, really important presidential election. And so I just want to say the timing really matters because this is anticipating a moment of response to community, communities doing this themselves when they need to be coming together. Um, and I really just want to underline that in these moments, sure, people read the paper, sure, people look at polls, sure, people get to know candidates. I actually, I'm, I've been very involved in politics my entire life. Coming together with your neighbors is honestly the only way that people change their minds about this stuff. And so this idea of calling people into relationship for two years in advance of a presidential election on the notion of home is huge. Sorry. Yeah, and you know, I have to give credit to where credit is due, and my creative partner and co-artistic director, Leah de Bessonet, um, very much lives in this aesthetic of large-scale pageant-based work. And she and I both, um, you know, kind of were like, we need to give ourselves permission also, right, to think at scale and function at scale in a project that isn't necessarily you know, Annie Live for NBC TV or, you know, Into the Woods on Broadway, but something that brings us together as a country and has ripples of investment, right? So, and, and those ripples are the very relationships, the infrastructure that's being built right now um, hyper-locally between these places where folks are, for the very first time, gathering together to collaborate. Um, the city of Winston-Salem, case in point, just 
received a million dollars on Monday. This was, you know, I uh, got a text message from one of our colleagues there to support this project locally. So, you know, we were able to help them leverage up to make an investment over the next two years um, around new relationships and building new inroads into a very specific community in Winston-Salem with this sort of cross-sector um, vibe, right? So what are we looking to measure? We are looking to measure nationally um, the impacts of arts participation on individuals and communities. We are looking at data, that, again, that's both qualitative and quantitative. So, um, and we're thinking about uh, strategies, and we learned this from our friends who run community health centers, uh, strategies around services of arts and culture in proximity to health centers, right? So that can look like uh, artists in residence at a clinic. That can look like co-location services where, you know, uh, Yeba Buena is inviting, you know, people out to a particular clinic yep. or, you know, that clinic is inviting people, their clients to a show. Um, it could look like social prescription, which is another really interesting emerging um, possibility for us in the United States. Uh, the UK is already invested in this. There's a fair amount of data around social, social prescription in the arts. Um, we're just beginning to realize that here. And there are places like the New Jersey Performing Arts Center yep. um, that just hired uh, a director of arts and well-being. Her name is Ali uh, Lakuta Meyer. Um, and they have, through their university partnership, a, and we heard yesterday, I think, from the president of uh, the University of Utah talking about, like, use us. Yes. You know, um, we have lots Universities of are second to government in that funding triangle. <laughs> right? We um, can try things. They can help scale. Government can help scale. And, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that I was like, yes. Like, you know, that's yeah. an example where Rutgers is supporting the research-based work so that social prescription will begin to happen with NJPAC in relationship to Newark, the community, and several partners. And just appropriate for this audience, I just, so the purpose of the data collection and the reporting, would you think it's fair to say that it's to support additional funding? It's to support additional funding. It's to learn about whether or not these models have resonance, yep. right, on an individual level. Uh, so do folks keep coming back after they come to the first show? You know, what we've kind of learned through some of the work we've helped to instigate in Dallas is not only will they keep coming back to the Dallas Theater Center, but because they're now part, these are everyday folks who are participating in, in, in some projects, specifically public works, which is something, we, you know, I, I got off the ground with Lear there and the DTC. Um, you know, they'll go to other things upon well, so you, Using the case for culture to um, raise mon more money for culture because you understand the positive impact that it has on communities. Absolutely. And... I think it. I think important in this conversation is also it might crack open new ways to think about um, ways of funding culture. Well, that's our hope, especially with sort of the infrastructure relationships that are being built on a hyper-local level per participating site. And I mean, I don't know um, how exactly the cities you are working with are arranged in terms of having arts and culture departments, for example, in mayor's offices. But I do know that many, many, many mayor's offices do not have um, arts and culture sort of deputies or agencies. And so are you finding that in um, many of these cities you're performing a role that nobody has walked into before? It's a both and, right? There are places where folks are building off of 
um, existing work like Utica, Mississippi, where they already have a relationship with their mayor. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a town of 900 people. Um, they are doing active place-based work. They're purchasing real estate. They're reinvesting in the notion of cultural production as it relates to agriculture. Okay, I have a question. And I'm media, out. I have a question. Right? Is it easier to experiment in smaller places with less developed ecosystems? That's a really good question, and. Um, <laughs> I would say also the jury's out on that because there's another small rural town which is it my um, favorite? It's no, it's not your favorite. Uh, Phillips County. I have County, a favorite. Philly, yeah, I know you do. Uh, <laughs> Phillips County, Arkansas, which is comprised of three towns: uh, Elaine, Marvel, and Helena. Um, Elaine is the predominantly African American town of this, you know, agricultural county off of the Mississippi Delta in Arkansas. It's also the site of one of the largest massacres of African-American people um, in the country. And a lot of folks don't know that Elaine story. I certainly didn't until we were introduced to them. But this notion of navigating space, right, is it easier in a rural context? It isn't when there's a legacy of trauma, and this is real. We feel the thickness of that on the calls with the county officials, the lead artists, um, and instigators of this project that we're supporting, um, where their, their theme is around uh, the environment and in water because of their proximity to, to the Delta. What they're really trying to get to is repair, healing, and yeah. restoration. Beautiful. Right? Yeah. Um, but water is sort of like the metaphor and the entry point. I mean, into everywhere. The big tent, everywhere. Right? Yeah. And I know that has resonance here. So I, I think the jury's out on where it's easier. We talk a lot about readiness of conditions. Mm. And um, I think that's one of the other things we're going to learn about what needs to be in place for things to happen, you know, um, where some of these folks have been. So we got 10 minutes left. So and I, I just want to give you an appreciation and then we'll open it up to questions. Is that okay? Yeah. Clyde and I talk a lot and I, I really, I consider you such a friendly in the realm of doing everything you possibly can and laying it all out on the line um, with the resources and sort of access at your disposal. So just thank you for being that person and available to me as we navigate. Thank you. And I think for the folks who know me in the room, you know, it's just how it's I good. roll. Basically, I know it is. Right? So, I know it is. Um, but this okay. is being recorded. There's people not in the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, you can follow me on Instagram uh, at Clyde Valentine. The real deal. Valentine, not Valentine, right? So let's go to some questions, if there are any in the audience. And what we'll do is we'll repeat them into the mic so it gets recorded or captured. Any questions? I think the question is related to, like, uh, trajectory. How do you uh, talk about career. your journey? So, you know, I consider myself a cultural entrepreneur, right? And I, and I put the word culture in front of entrepreneur because all of my work has been in and around culture. Right. So from founding a publishing company in 1995 that focused on hip hop, arts and culture, not just rap music, was something that we did for five straight years. Right. Um, that was right out of college. You know, that typical story, some seed investment from, you know, somebody's dad. And then we just kind of took it there. We took it from there and ran. Right. Uh, we were competing with, you know, much deeper pockets, you know, uh, well-resourced institutions like Vibe and, 
you know, um, Harris Publishing and others, but aesthetically we were at the foreground and we stayed there, right? We gave Jay-Z his first cover, keeping rap dollars in rap pockets. Facts. I have that cover I could show it to you. We gave Eminem his first cover. Why? Because he was a vicious rapper. He did everything he needed to do. And we knew it was going to trouble the racial dynamics of a, a white kid with legitimacy who just got signed to Dr. Dre in Aftermath before we even knew what that was and before 50 got signed by, you know, so that was that space, right? And we did that for five years, but it was really about storytelling at the end of the day. So jumping into the Hip Hop Theater Festival was easy for me. I didn't know theater, but I knew the culture. And I knew producing. Um, and, you know, we forged space for ourselves and each other, right? Um, I also didn't want to be a founder that stuck around too long, which we know is also like a thing that happens. Now, it doesn't happen in this space. We talk a lot about founders at SOCAP, but, you know, there's already an understanding that, you know, founders take you to a particular point, but then you need a management team. Right. And all along those ways, those series of investments come with that additional capacity. Do they not? As a EDC They definitely person, do. They, they definitely do. do. We don't do that in arts and culture. What we do is we elevate the individual. We don't traditionally do that. Right. We're starting to do it more. We're starting to do it more. I'm talking generally. But that was, you know, for me, a very proactive way of thinking with respect to the hip hop theater festival to make a departure. And then another opportunity came along, which is to start a new thing inside an institution predominantly white privileged institution in the case of Southern Methodist University to build meaningful relationships, not only in the city of Dallas and across those communities, but the region and the country, right? So it was a new challenge for me to see if my chops have muster, right? And we did that for seven years. Um, that commitment for me was three to five years. It became seven because of COVID, right? But I was intent on an exit and a departure. And then along came my creative partner, Lear, who was like, I had this idea, and would you partner with me on the realization of it? Uh, so we began to work quietly for a number of months. And, and for me, it's always not only the, my entrepreneurial kind of drive is driven by purpose, and I'm clear about purpose. And my purpose is to create moments of and opportunities for transformation, right? That is not a job right? That is a life goal. And my purpose spoke to me loud and clear when this project was presented to me to help bring it to fruition. So we started off with a one-page concept paper. We now have nine sites. We're working our way towards 18. Um, we've raised uh, about $4 million so far. And each city has raised its own public financing to support those projects locally. So that money doesn't pass through us, it stays. So we've already created leveraging opportunities. You got to make sure you look at the, not just the dollars you've raised, but the dollars you've leveraged when That's you do right. your reporting. And Daryl knows this. We counted those dollars we leveraged in Dallas Good. through our impact reports because not all resources had to go through us to be meaningful. Yep. Right? And yeah. I think uh, YBCA would do wise to do the same when we get to it. So that was an answer to that question. Yes, in the back here. So I think the question was, how were the first nine sites selected? Which ones are they, too? Oh, which ones? So which cities were uh, selected and how? So we only got a couple of minutes. I want to refer you to our website, onenationoneproject.com. 
Um, one of our national partners, which is how we were able to scale, we knew we had to work with people who are already operating on the national level, so that's the National League of Cities. They helped us kind of like get the word out for this first nine. We're in an iterative process with them now. It's not how they work, it's how we work. It's an artist-led pro artist project, right? Uh, we're also the ones raising the money. Really important question. Do you, you know, want introductions if people have ideas for cities that have interesting creatives and stories to tell? We're in conversation right now with cities all around the country about the second cohort. And um, we're mostly focused west of the Mississippi. Because when you look at our geography, we're primarily east of the Mississippi. What we like about our map is that it's not the usual suspects. No offense to San Francisco, but it's not on the list. I'm trying. New York City I'm trying. is not on the list right now. The only big city we have on the list that you would expect Chicago? to see is Chicago. Right? Um, working on it. We're working yeah, so, on it. So, so, you know, that's, you know, it's in conversation, and we're going to revamp what we called an RFP. We're not going to call it an RFP, but there will be an invitation. We have one minute left, which well, I think means we have one question left. What can institutions offer at the individual level to support creative entrepreneurship? I wish I had the right answer for every case to offer. Um, I don't know if I do. I guess what I would say as somebody who's worn an educator hat in particular, um, I don't, and I've been an entrepreneur, like it wasn't right for me. It was like way too heavy. I, <laughs> so I have a bias there. Um, I think it can be really hard. I think the thing that we think about at YBCA is making sure that what we offer feels scalable and that we're investing in the artists in our community um, in a way that is right in this community first. That feels really important to say. Um, I think we have to acknowledge the unique situation of the Bay Area as it is right now. And for those of you who are not living here, it's a whole lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you are inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved with the SoCup community, join us at SoCup 23 in October. As a podcast listener, you can save up to $50 of the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SoCupGlobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October. Be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcast to be notified of our next episode's release.